the privilege to be with you this morning, and we trust as we open the Word of God, it may be pleasing to Him to bless it to our hearing. French Protestants during the 18th century suffered greatly, intensely under Louis XV and the Roman Catholic Church because of their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. One of these who suffered was Mary, uh, Mary Durand. She had her mother and father over time imprisoned for worshipping the Lord in secret. Her brother actually was executed, he was shot for preaching the gospel. And just before Duran turned 18 years old, when she was about to be married, she was arrested. And she was taken to one of those notorious, infamous prisons, cold and dank, in Exmoor, a prison that was in the place called La Tour de Constance. And all she had to do, she was there in the prison with some 30 other women who were Protestant Christians. And all that they had to do was to renounce their Protestant faith and embrace and, became, uh, and become a Roman Catholic. But Duran refused. And she remained in prison for 38 years, reading the scriptures, praying, and encouraging the other women in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if you were to visit that prison, you will find in, etched in the stone, in a stone in the prison where she remained, one word. One word which summarizes her life, resiste. And that, in that context, means withstand, endure, persevere. What I want to do is to reflect upon this call of God to the Christian to persevere or to endure, and I'm using those concepts synonymously. The book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. That is what we find at the end of chapter, at the end of the book in chapter 13, verse 22. It is a call, it's an exhortation, and it is particularly an exhortation to endure. It's addressed to Christians who are lagging in their faith, Christians who are wondering whether it is, it pays to continue serving the Lord. And the writer, though he will point them to the reality as they are attracted by Judaism, the pomp and splendor of the Jewish faith. He will tell them that Jesus is superior to anything that they can find in Judaism. And he will exhort them to endure in this Christian life. What I want to do is to open before you this theme of endurance or perseverance. I want to look simply at the necessity of this endurance the, the measure or the character of this endurance and the reward of endurance. And there is one text which I think summarizes this call for endurance found in Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 36. And I'm reading from the ESV translation. 
where the writer of Hebrews, the pastor, in Hebrews 10 and verse 36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The necessity, the measure and the reward of endurance. Well, the necessity of endurance. This term, to endure, means to hold up, to bear up under difficulty. You, you may imagine a weightlifter who lifts uh, 400 pounds and is under tremendous strain and, and stress. But he perseveres. He holds up. He does not crumble like chocolate soldier to the ground. One writer, Winter, says that this notion of endurance, uh, hupomene, as it appears in the text, um, is, is, is bearing up under adversity. So one can see, for example, it's used in, in ancient Greek literature of, 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 a, of a shrub that is growing out of the, the, the face of a cliff, the rock face of a cliff. There's not a lot of substance there, but it endures. I don't think we have to go through class, Greek class, classical literature to understand endurance. Those of us who are supporters of the Leafs uh, <laughs> understand endurance and tremendous endurance. It is to bear up under adversity and difficulty and trial. And in a sense, it is true that this language of endurance is, is, a, is a reference to the more static virtues of the Christian life. To hold fast, to bear up are static virtues as one writer addresses them. That is not to say that, of course, they are not more dynamic virtues. Because you, you see in Hebrews the call that we must approach or draw near or strive to enter in. Or we are told to run the race. These, you see, point to the reality that the Christian life is viewed as active. It is indeed viewed as a pilgrimage on which the Christian enters. The church of God in Hebrews is a church on the move. So there's a lot of action there where we are called upon. But here, he says that we must stand our ground. We must endure. And, and that is important because if we are to advance, we must first endure in the Christian life. Well, this call to endure is necessary because of the perils that confronts the Christian in the Christian life. And there are all kinds of troubles and trials that face us from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. Karen Jobes, uh, who, who wrote a commentary on Hebrews, says that she was, she was always uh, puzzled by the call of Hebrews to persevere. When she just began her Christian life, it was a ball. A tremendous fun. I mean, your sins are forgiven. You, are, you, you know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what, what is there to endure about that? But as she went on with the Christian life, she began to realize that there were hurdles along the way. Trials that confronted her along the way and confronts all of us as Christians. There is, of course, the, the, the question of believers asking, is the gospel relevant to meet the challenges that I face? The, disappo the disappointed hopes the aging of parents and the waywardness of children, broken relationships, 
and perennial episodes of evil, wars, for instance, economic, um, global economic woes or natural catastrophes may, may, may cause the Christian to doubt the promise of God and the goodness of God. And one has to persevere through the trials that are around us in life. The, 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 ten, the, the temptation to unbelief, particularly in life circumstances, is real for the Christian. That unbelief was the same thing that the children of Israel face as we read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. And so this, this temptation to unbelief and to apostasy faces the Christian. And we too have that same challenge. We live in a post-Christian age. Evidenced, we are told, um, by, by a context that is described as expressive individualism. And Charles Taylor, who was professor of philosophy at McGill, has written a book, The Sources of the Self, and argues that our understanding of self must be, must be seen through the prism of this inwardness. When we think of ourselves, there is this inwardness, this, this emphasis upon the inner psychological life. We affirm the ordinariness of the modern era. We hold to the notion that morals are derived from nature. The morals that we hold inwardly, we find them from nature. And all of this summarizes a departure from biblical revelation, where man and his thinking becomes the authority. It is our feeling, our perspective that drives the agenda. And we as Christians can be caught up in that same mindset. To think that we are the authority and so to endure is necessary because of unbelief, whether it is fostered from outside or fostered from within. But these particular Christians here in Hebrews chapter 10 are called upon to endure particularly because of persecution. Not just because of temptation to unbelief, but to, from persecution. And one needs to understand that the Christians in the early at least in the first century, were persecuted because primarily there came a clash between their, their commitment and loyalty to King Jesus and to the emperor, where emperor worship was a part of the religion of the first century. But you can't read Hebrews chapter 1 that begins in these first five verses with this splendid description of Jesus Christ. As the, as the Son who has come in these last days, through whom the Lord God created the world, the one who is the very replica or who is the very nature, the exact image of the Father, the one who is the outshining of the Father's glory, the one who carries the world. That's the term the Pharaoh, the one who carries the world to its design and to its goal. That which God has set for it, the one who cleanses us from our sins and is seated at the right hand of majesty. You see that description of Jesus as the sovereign creator and Lord of life means that there can be no other man who deserves his loyalty. And so the Christians were persecuted. They were thought to be traitorous, seditious for not worshiping the empire, the emperor. And you will find that in verse 32, he will list some of the sufferings that they endured. Notice the, the, the verb reoccurs, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured struggle with suffering, a contest, an athletic contest with suffering. 
And what was the suffering? They were exposed to public shame, verbal shame in public. They were, they were, uh, they were subject to affliction, that is to public beatings. Not only so, they were imprisoned and they themselves were partners with those who were imprisoned. You will notice further that these were those who had their properties confiscated, their land, their houses taken away simply because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they were able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property since they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These were those who had suffered. And so he tells them here in verse 36, you have need of endurance. Having told them in verse 35 negatively, don't throw away your confidence. Positively, he says, you have need of endurance. And he says, you endured in the past when you were suffering. Now you need today to endure. You need to endure the persecution and the suffering that have come your way and of come your way from Almighty God. And you will notice that, that the writer of Hebrews will also point, use the same vocabulary of endurance. He uses it in verse 36, uses it again in, uh, earlier in verse 32, and he then will use the same language in chapter 12. This is called to endure. Since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of weakness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run. There you have it. And in verse 1, and let us run with endurance. There you have the noun. And then the verbal form, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, this call to endure has before us the endurance of Jesus Christ. It is he who endured the sufferings of the cross. And believers are therefore called to endurance because this is the example that Jesus Christ has set for us. But this endurance is necessary not only because of tribulations in the Christian life, not only because of the example of Jesus, but this endurance is necessary because endurance is essential for salvation. It is those who endure to the end who will be saved. But we also need to bear in mind that the call to endurance is never to be taken to mean that we have the capacity on our own as though endurance is some inherent strength that we possess. Endurance is a gift of God. We endure in a sense because God endures with us or we persevere because God perseveres with us. And you want to have the confidence that he who begins the good work in us will fulfill it until the day of Jesus Christ. Our God is a persevering God. He never gives up. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 verse 5 calls, describes God as a God of endurance. He says, may the God of endurance, the God who is characterized by endurance, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with another in accordance with Jesus Christ. Romans 15 verse 5. Well, we see the necessity to endure. But the question then, what is the measure of endurance? What's the character of endurance? 
Well, if you go back to our text, do a little bit of movement back and forth, but you'll bear with me. In verse 36, here in chapter 10, he tells them, but you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The endurance that he's calling upon believers to exercise is particularly an endurance in doing the will of God. It is not merely that we are to remain static, but we are to remain being faithful to the will of God. And this is a pregnant statement made here by the apostle or by the writer of this book. Doing the will of God, the one who created the world by his word, the one who we must believe exists and is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I want to make five observations rapidly with respect to this matter of doing the will of God or enduring in obedience to the will of God. We need to know that when he says you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise, First of all, doing the will of God summarizes the entire life of obedience that we owe to God. In fact, when Paul prays, he says that Epaphras, in fact, referring to Epaphras, he says in Colossians 4.12, that Epaphras was praying that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You know, in a sense then, Christian maturity is measured by doing the will of God. How do we know we are maturing in the faith? We know that as our lives begin to correspond with the will of God. The truly mature man or woman is that person who lives in congruency, in obedience to the will of God. And the, the whole Christian life may be summarized as a movement closer and closer and closer to the will of God. This is what he's saying. You see, the whole Christian life is about doing the will of God. Nietzsche, the philosopher, was no friend of Christians. He was an enemy of the cross. And yet when he defined the Christian life, he says this of the Christian life. The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is all about a long obedience in the same direction. Over and over, every morning, getting up again and serving the Lord. And by the way, we, we, we serve the Christian life one day at a time. Many times we don't overcome our addictions and our sins because we become discouraged. We say, well, you know, I failed yesterday, I'm going to fail tomorrow. No. Live today for God. And if you live today for God, and tomorrow for God, just one day at a time, you'll find that your faithfulness will grow over a long stretch of time. Don't get too far ahead of ourselves. Sometimes that is discouraging. So he tells us this is long obedience. This is what Christian life is about. And you may say, well, practically, what does this doing the will of God include? Well, if you read scripture, there are several things that may be included in the will of God, like giving generously. The Macedonians, we are told, gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5, but that is referred to giving. Or 
you do God's will by obeying those in authority. Slaves are told in Ephesians 6 to obey their masters. So when you go to work and you have a, a grouchy boss and maybe not even know exactly what, what you're doing and giving you instruction, he says, well, I know more than this guy anyway. Why, why shall I follow him? Well, the Bible does expect you to obey, to obey. You see, you obey those who have been placed above you. That's doing the will of God. Or giving thanks to God in all circumstances because this is the will of God for you. The life of holiness is part of doing the will of God. So that the Apostle Paul could say to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5. These are part and parcel of the will of God. And so we, want, we need to recognize that, that this is, doing the will of God includes the entirety of the, the commands given in Scripture, at least particularly enjoined in the New Testament. Here in Hebrews, you have a sense of what the will of God is because here in this same chapter, going back to verse 22, you have three commands, for instance. And I'm not saying that only what is written here is the will of God. There are other things outside of in chapter 6 and so on. But if you were to look, say, at verse 22 in this chapter, here you have the beginning of, of three commands. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The second command, let us host, hold fast the confession of our hope without weight wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the third command, and let us consider how to stir up one another and to, to love and to good works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some. These are some of the command. Enduring suffering is part of the command. If you were to go over to chapter, later on in chapter 13, you will find that doing the will of God in verses 15 and 16 involves the believer offering to God the sacrifice of praise. So he says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. What we're doing this morning, that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledges his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All of this, this life of worship, the life of, of giving, of generosity to the people of God, all of this in Hebrews are part and parcel of what it means to do the will of God. So more rapidly then, the will of God involves the entire of the Christian's obedience to God, which includes these things like holiness, generosity, worship, and so on. The will of God is good and pleasing. That's what we, write, we read in Romans 12. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may be able to discern the will of God, which is good and pleasing. Pleasing to whom? Pleasing to God. When we do God's will, God is pleased. And doing the will of God is contrary to living according to our lust. So Peter could say in chapter 4 that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. In chapter 4, verse 2, 1 Peter 4, 2. When we do the will of God, we are no longer living for our wills. We're not seeking to please ourselves. You know, we consider some people to be dangerous, like ex-wives and ex-husbands. 
and we think the government is very dangerous and we have sympathies there on some account. We think the rich are always seeking to get us. But the greatest danger comes not from our ex or from the government or from other people, but from ourselves. Uh, Martin Luther used to pray for three hours a day, and when he was in a good mood, he would pray, God deliver me from the Pope and from the Emperor and deliver me from myself. You see, when you do God's will, we do not do our will. But I want to just drill down here before we rush forward to say to you that if obedience is that which pleases God, it means not doing our will, that this obedience, our obedience, is engendered by the obedience of Christ. It's not, I believe, without merit that the chapter opens, chapter 10 opens, by quoting Psalm 40, where it speaks of the Father providing a body for the Son that he might enter into this world. The writer tells us that the sacrifices of animals could not cleanse sin. Consequently, in verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices, you have taken no pleasure. And then verse 7, he's quoting Psalm 40. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What I'm saying is that this command in here in chapter 10, verse 36, to endure in the will of God is rooted first and foremost in the sublime obedience of the Son of God. That Jesus Christ is truly the obedient Son who left the glory and the splendor of heaven and took upon himself a body and came to offer a sacrifice for our sin because of obedience to his Father. His meat and drink was to do the will of his Father. The command of God were not grievous to him, but he who is of the same nature, the same station as a father, nevertheless humbled himself to become a servant and humbled himself to the point of death. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and to the honor of God the Father. You see, it is the obedience of Jesus here that provides us this blessing of salvation. The writer begins to in verse 8 and following, comments on the obedience of Christ and his fruit, his result. Christ has offered one sacrifice that has taken away our sins. He has purged our sins. He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. To perfect the believer means that they have been brought into access with God. Given, given this access with God, their sins have been cleansed. You will see later in the chapter that the, the fruit of Christ's obedience is that not only 
we have our sins forgiven, but we've been brought into this eternal covenant. And it is precisely then, because of Christ's work of obedience, that you and I have been saved and empowered to obey God. You need that order. It cannot be reversed. The obedience of Christ followed by our obedience. It is the ground. It is the source. It is the basis of our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But my friends, we need to know quickly that doing the will of God is rooted in faith. You see that in chapter, here in chapter 10 and in the following verse, he will tell us that it is the just who live by faith. We, we read that chapter in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. There we are told that the just shall live by faith, and the writer clarifies that. In verse 38, here of chapter 10 of Hebrews, but my righteous one shall live by faith. So it is only by relying upon the resource in God and trusting upon God that we ourselves are able to endure. But I want to hurry then to this final point. We see the reward of faithfulness. If we see the character or the measure of obedience to the will of God, we see now the, the reward. Notice the text in verse 36 says to us, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, it's enduring in the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And he says, it's, it's, it's tremendously satisfying that our God is so gracious and so kind. Because on one hand, he demands the greatest devotion. You must do my will. But he pays the greatest dividend. He gives the greatest blessing. And that's what the writer says. When you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Well, what's the promise? Well, the promise here refers... The promise here refers to the eternal inheritance that God will give the saints. It's the promise of entering rest. In chapter 1034, it's the better and everlasting possession. It is the greater reward in verse 35 of chapter 10. Or one thinks of it in chapter 9 of Hebrews verse 15 as an eternal inheritance. The promise of an eternal inheritance. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. And this eternal inheritance is described in Hebrews. The eschatology of Hebrews is marvelous. This eternal inheritance is entering into the sabbatismus of God, that eternal Sabbath of God, that Sabbath rest. It's, it's being part of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so the writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. It is, it is to be a part of a kingdom that he describes as unshakable, that permanent, eternal home of the living God. This is what he promises, an eternal inheritance in heaven. But I would say to you that the reward that is given for perseverance is not simply being a part of this great, tremendous throng of saints in the new heavens and the new earth, not only being part of the heavenly Jerusalem, it is seeing Jesus face to face. 
It is what the older theologians described as the beatific vision. To see Christ and to be changed into his image. How do I know that? Because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 verse 14 says this. In a, in a line that doesn't seem to be very important, but is of tremendous weight. He says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you ask what is the promise that awaits those who persevere, it's a promise of seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ. Heaven is, is heaven because of Christ. It is being in his presence. That is our reward of being with Christ and seeing him. My friends, let me make a, a few concluding remarks. The ancient city of Pompeii in Italy was destroyed in 779 AD by a volcanic eruption. And thousands of people in the city were buried under volcanic ash. And when the city was excavated, they discovered human remains in cellars or basements of houses and even in upper rooms where they had sought refuge from the lava that poured down upon the city. And among the remains found in Pompeii was a remain of a Roman soldier. He was found standing at the gate of the city where his commander had placed him. And when the ground shook, when the lava poured down and people were running for their lives, he stood his ground. And today, this soldier still stands with his weapon in his hand. He, for eternity, still stands. And you and I must stand through difficult, bewildering times. We must stand when we don't understand God's ways with our lives. We must stand when providence smiles or when providence frowns. We must be still found standing when Jesus comes. But if we are to stand, we must enter the Christian faith. There are many who look at the Toronto Mar Marathon and think of the winner. But no one can win a marathon unless they enter the race. And if we are to be winners, if we are to remain to the end, we must first enter. And how do we enter the Christian life? We do so by faith. By trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. By reliance. It's more than merely knowledge. It's more than merely agreeing with the knowledge. It is this notion of fiducia of resting and remaining upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is able to bear all of us. His blood has done the work of salvation and we rest fully and totally upon the finished, crucified, risen Jesus Christ. 
It is only by trusting in Christ that we are saved. Salvation is found in no other place and in no other name than in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We must trust him. But my friends, it means that we must return, turn away from our own ways. It means that we must say no to self and yes to the will of God. Let's remember that self-gratification is not a Christian virtue. Submission to the will of God is. We must put aside all our plans and all our desires that are against the will of God and do not glorify him. And that radical transformation begins when we submit to the Lordship of Christ and say like Madison the hymn writer, make me a captive Lord and I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conquer thee. But secondly, we must meditate upon the cross because the cross trains us in obedience. In the cross, we see the obedience of Jesus Christ. From the cross, we receive all that we need. It is not only, I think it was John Owen, the great Puritan, who reminded us that it is not simply salvation which comes from the cross. But sanctification also comes from the cross. So we must meditate upon the obedient Son of God. We must meditate upon Jesus Christ who died for our sins. We must, we must take the cross with its sin-killing power into our hearts. And as we meditate, not in episodic fashion, but continually reflect upon the grandeur and the glory of God's obedient Son, the cross enters our life, and it enters our lives with sin-killing power to turn us away from our excesses and to enable conformity to Christ. And then, my friends, if we are to be those who are obedient to the will of God, we must do everything with eternity in view. You know, what we, what we think upon, what we hope for, shapes how we live. If we think of having a big house or a better job or, a, a, or getting in better shape, these things determine what we do. So we must set our eyes upon heaven, upon the prize, the reward, the reward of grace, for we will never earn heaven. It's given to us by our gracious God, even though we are unworthy, because Christ is worthy for us. And so how do, we, how do we live this life of obedience, of faithful obedience? We do so from turning, by turning from self to God, by trusting in Christ, by meditating upon the obedient Son and His cross work. And we, we endure by keeping our eyes fixed on glory. Resting, hoping, trusting by faith in the coming Lord Jesus Christ. We endure by living by, in faith in the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant who makes us complete in every good work to do his will, working in us what is well-pleasing in his sight. To Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.